0: You a better way. Hi, folks. Jack Spirico here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 7th, 2019, and this is episode 2396 of the Survival Podcast. Listener calls for March 7th, 2019. This is where you pick up the phone. You call me at 866-65, think, 866-65-THINK, eight six 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 five think Before I tell you what we're going to talk about today, I want to do something I probably should do at least once every couple weeks. And that is a real quick explanation of what this show really is for people that are tuning in for the first or second or third time. Going, wait a minute. He's talking about CPAs and tax attorneys and... Uh, you know, all this stuff. And then there's guns and stuff that we would think of, food storage, and, you know, like that we would normally think of as being a survival topic. What's going on here? If you're tuning into this show uh, as a new listener, this is not your daddy's survival podcast, though it might be because we are the longest-running podcast on self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty uh, on the Internet today, and certainly the most successful just by number of listeners and downloads and longevity, et cetera. I do this show as my full-time income. This is what I do. I've dedicated myself to it. We're in our 11th year as of this summer. June 20th will be our 11th anniversary. And I believe that one of the reasons that we've been around so long, and people keep listening after all these years, is that we look at survivalism, or what I call modern survivalism, a phrase that I coined back in the summer of 2008. Modern survivalism being the way we build resiliency into our lives for all things. Whether that is a catastrophic event or whether that's a job loss. Or whether that's just being miserable and wanting to change our situation. How do we eat better food without spending more money? How do we get through a financial crisis without going bankrupt? This is what this show is about. Everything from, yeah, kind of, you know, not really but the zombie apocalypse all the way up to just how do I deal with the daily shit that comes into my life? And so that's what you're in store for. On that note, if you want to ask a question and get on the air, there's a couple of ways to do that. One, you can dial 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, or you can go to the THINK line. You can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on contact, and using the speak pipe button. And leave me your uh, message, and I'll try to get you on the air. I don't get everybody on the air, but I get a lot of people on the air that call in. I certainly get less calls and voice messages than I get emails. So it is the better way to get on the show. Format, be in a quiet location. Number two, know what you're going to ask and have condensed it down to a single question. Ask that question. Three, then give me your details. If you do those three things, the odds are you will get on the air. And if you don't, try again. Try a couple times. A couple, three times, you'll probably get on the air at least once. It's not as hard as people think. What do we got lined up today? When, when not to, and how to set up an LLC or corporation, and this also involves partnerships. And I'm going to speak very, very harshly on partnerships, very harshly, because partnerships usually don't work. Um, developing a skill set for project management positions, uh, an interesting idea for the mectech which is a carbine conversion kit for handguns that uh, we talked about last week, and 80% lowers. I think two weeks ago we talked about the MechTech. It's one of those things like, why did I see that? Why did I see that? Now I, now I want to spend $400. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can talk about project management, and we can talk about corporations and business all you want. I still love guns, man. Um, I have a question from a person really new to this, I can tell. Uh, by the tone of the question, But how do I find others who are interested in prepping and self-sufficiency? Uh, food storage without large amounts of carbohydrates if you 're on the primal paleo protein based diet you know high fat keto any of that how do we store food really not that hard we've talked about it before we 'll do it again today. How to find a good CPA for your needs that 's actually really important your needs the CPA you need with business you know with a uh, with a regular job and then a couple small side hustles. Is probably different than the CPA that I need, where all of my income, 100% of it is various forms of company income and self-employment. That's totally different worlds, and we'll talk about that, why it's not maybe as hard or difficult as you think. Uh, how could UBI work, and why it won't happen the way I'm going to describe it ever? And there's going to be a big disclaimer when I get to that last segment today, and if you've been under a rock, you do not know what UBI is. It's Universal Basic Income. This is where everybody would get a certain amount of money every month just for existing. And then go do you want with it and go try to make more if you wish to. And so that is something that many on the left, uh, but many also in the libertarian space, at least a portion of it, have said, well, this is a pretty good idea. Uh, I can make a case for it. I don't think it's a good idea, but I can make a case for it. That's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to do it like I was in a debate. And they said this is going to be the issue, and I went up and studied on it for you know two weeks to get ready for my debate. And I'll explain more about this when I get to the segment. But when you do that, you don't get to say – like you see these people that are like in media and all, and they're like, well, I want to debate so-and-so on the merits of this. And they both have clear-defined positions. When you do debate in any kind of an organization, that's not how it works. You get assigned a topic, and your job is to completely drill down on both sides of the topic – And you don't get to pick which side of that debate that you're going to have. And you have to show up prepared. And then they say, you are taking the position pro or you're taking the position anti or whatever. I'm going to come at this like, I studied up on a debate of UBI. And didn't matter what I thought. I studied both sides of it, analyzed it completely. And when I showed up, they said, you have to give a pro-UBI stance. Because I think if you really want to understand an issue, that's what you have to do. You have to be able to make a case both for and against it. Or if you have two different ways of doing something, you have to be able to make a case for both of those ways. And only then do we truly understand it. Much like people wonder, why do we have foreign languages in school? Like, why would we learn Spanish or French or German or Latin? You know, Latin, if you're going into medicine or science, makes sense, obviously. But take the Latin away and the science uh, avenue away. Why do you learn Spanish? Why do you learn German? Especially if you're not going to Germany. You're not going to have a job that requires German. Because when we, when we learn a second language, we better understand our own language. And, and debate kind of works that way, too. So we'll talk about all of that in just a bit. Before I dig into it, though, I wanted to talk to you um, about this day in history and, and what happened this day in history. On this day in history, one of the greatest poets of all time composed a poem that almost every school child has been forced at some point in their life to memorize. It's a simple, short poem. Beautiful poem. It is a masterwork of poetry. It seems very simple, but this is a poem that actually to get everything to rhyme and work and rhythm the way that it does is very difficult in the English language without butchering the poem, staying true to it. The poet is Robert Frost, and the poem, Stopping by Woods... On a snowy evening. Now, it's actually not my favorite uh, poem by Robert Frost. Robert Frost is one of my favorite writers; he really is. But this is not my favorite, but I like this one. What I decided to do is I'm going to go. I went on to YouTube and found a a person reading the poem, especially with my strained voice, with the illness I'm dealing with right now. um, I felt would do a better job of reading it. I want to play that for you now, and uh, then I will come back with an analysis of this poem. You may or may not have ever heard. And I think even if you've heard the analysis of it, you will never have heard the conclusion.
1: Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Between the woods and frozen lake. The darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake. To ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds. The sweep of easy wind. And downy flake. The woods are lovely. Dark and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep.
0: So there's been a lot of different uh, ways that this poem has been analyzed. Some have analyzed it as just the beauty of the woods being a, a siren song, a seduction against modern day life and the responsibilities of life pulling you back. And there's been a lot of other ways that this poem's been analyzed. Probably the darkest analysis of this is actually this poem is a contemplation of suicide. And when you tell some people that, they're like, no, no, no. Well, what is what is more um, amazing as an artist than to be able to create beauty with the contrast of something so dark or ugly, like killing yourself? So here's how this poem could be contrived or, or considered to be about suicide. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. This is a place of the darkness, the darkest evening of the year. So this would, you know, apparently be the winter solstice. But anyway, it's very, very dark. It's the darkest time, the quietest time. And no one will see me. Whose woods are these I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. So completely alone, totally at peace, the only person with him, or the only thing really with him that's alive is his horse. His horse questions, is this a mistake? And in the deepness and darkness of the woods... With a temptation to stay in the darkness. I have promises to keep. And miles to go. Before I sleep. And miles to go. Before I sleep. Hmm. Almost like there are others that depend on me. Doing this would be selfish. And there's more of my dash ahead of me. Before I sleep Just a different way to look at this poem And in 1923 On this day in history That poem was published Uh, Much to the joy and chagrin I think of school children everywhere Just a different way to look at things As we go into today's show I thought that would be interesting for you Alright with that let's go ahead We have our uh, first call here On when and when not to And how to set up an LLC or Inc And my thoughts on partnerships And should that really happen here
2: Hey Jack, how do you set up a corporation between either myself or a friend or just anybody in general? Backstory is, I, on my homestead that I bought, um, it has an old abandoned rock quarry. I built a stage out of it at a rock and we're having music festivals. And the first couple ones we had, it was strictly for donation purposes only. Uh, the third one we're planning now is getting kind of a little bit bigger, and I'm trying to set up some kind of corporation with myself and people in the music industry, local friends. So I'm trying to figure out how to go about doing it. Um, legally, I'm sure I'd have to get a lawyer and everything, but little, uh, help if you could. Uh, just also want to say that you're the jerk that got me to do this because I was, uh, Dennis Allen, city boy, homesteader. That's my uh, my tagline there. Uh, I left my corporate life in the city, sold my overpriced house, moved out to central Pennsylvania, started a homestead, and just doing a bunch of side hustles. Bought a cafe, doing a bunch of things, YouTube channel and podcast, things like that. So if anybody wants to check it out, DennisAllen.com. Um, thanks, Jack. You're the best. Really appreciate everything. Talk to you later.
0: Okay, so there's two totally separate issues here. The first is, is there justification at this point for the creation of an LLC, an S Corp or a C Corp, just because you're going to take some money in for the first time? The answer is probably not yet. This is something that I would discuss with a CPA at minimum and, you know, at all the way in a tax attorney. Um, Forming a corporation is incredibly easy. You can do it on a site like LegalZoom. You can do it. There's plenty of sites out there that do all the work for you. But there are there are many advantages to doing business as a company, uh, as a corporation, and there are some disadvantages. And depending on what you're doing, how things like taxes are handled, where you're going to incorporate, where the corporation is going to exist. The nature of the business, etc. There's a lot to determine whether or not it's the right thing to do. Let's look at one potential gotcha that you could have. Well, you form a corporation in the state of Pennsylvania. You're going to pay a corporate sales tax, a corporate tax rate. I believe is about two percent. I think that's right. I'm not sure, but this is this is not state income tax for you. This is corporate tax for the state of Pennsylvania. And even though things like LLCs are passed through entities, I think it is a classic double taxation. I don't remember because whatever it was, I decided not to ever incorporate a business in Pennsylvania. But I believe it works like this. And again, this is where you need somebody that knows to make this decision. Corporation uh, scores a profit of X dollars, you know. You then pay 2% of X. The money in the corporation then is assigned, whether you take the district. This is another thing you have to understand about corporations and LLCs. So then you and the, let's say you had one person make it simple. You both are 50-50. And let's say that you guys uh, made $100,000. You pay the state of Pennsylvania $2,000 in corporate income tax. Uh, that leaves $98,000 right in, uh, in income for the company. And we take 98, we divide it by two, we get 49 grand a piece. Now, let's say you want to leave that money in the company to do company things with the money. Okay, you're still paying income tax on that 49,000 whether you take the distribution or not. Where in something like an Inc., uh, C Corp., you could leave the money in the corporation and not have the income pass through, but now the corporation pays the tax of both uh, state and federal corporate tax rates. You see, like this gets really complicated really fast. Now, in general, in general, in general, I would advise most people to look to states with zero corporate taxes to set up their uh, corporation because why would you pay taxes you don't have to pay? This would be a state like Delaware is the most famous for having no corporate taxes whatsoever. So then, well, how does that affect you when you're doing business in the state of Pennsylvania? Do What do you have to pay tax on then? The answer is I don't know. So these are all the reasons I would say you probably shouldn't just go out and set up a corporation on your own, especially the first time before you know what you're dealing with. Okay. Um, When you do an LLC like this, there's a form called a K-1. Think of it kind of like a W-2 for the members of the LLC. And based on your percentage of ownership, the K-1 will say, let's say you had 70% ownership in a company that made $10,000. You have $7,000 worth of income. This will pretty much force you to take enough money out of the corporation, the LLC in this case, Limited Liability Company, to cover the tax that you incurred. So it may force you to take money out of the entity that you wouldn't otherwise have taken out of the entity. And had the entity only made ten grand because it's new, it would have been better if the money just stayed in the entity because the entity would have paid very low taxes on it, where if your 7000 bucks kicks you into a new tax bracket, you could pay the highest possible tax on that income. See how this gets complicated. And so... A lot of you guys are going, well, man. I just th- hearing all this shit. I, this LLC crap ain't for me. Okay, fine. Maybe, maybe not. It's just probably not for you on a small side hustle amount of income. It's probably not worth all the extra crap you have to deal with. Okay. Now, let's let's change this a little bit. Let's say that you're going to set up an LLC with one member, you yourself and you. That money will be taxed unless your state has something stupid, like Pennsylvania might, so you do it a non-corporate tax state like any other income you would have. And you simply take the money out. You want to cover your own taxes that come out of that with and leave the rest in there. And then it's kind of a wash because if it was a C-Corp, you would pay tax on the money anyway at the corporate tax rate. And under the new tax plan, it's, pre- it's all pretty close anyway not going to make or break you. And when the income's low, then it doesn't really matter anyway because it's not that much money. right? Now we have all the advantages of a corporation, but we have pass-through income to a sole proprietor, and therefore we're in much better shape, and it's a much easier decision to do this. You should still at least talk to your CPA about the implications of what it would mean, what's the additional filing costs, etc., and does it make sense to do it in a not the state you're not residing in. You could have a company in Pennsylvania incorporated in Delaware. People do it all the time. The biggest reason people do it, though, it isn't taxes. There's several states you can do little to no tax. Texas has a franchise tax; it's very, very tiny. Um, actually, the Texas Comptroller's office is one of the easiest to deal with in the whole country. They really are, uh, and they're helpful. To, I mean, like the only people I've ever talked to in government, especially involving taxes, that are totally helpful. When I've had to talk to the Comptroller's office here a couple times. Tell you exactly what you need to know. No bullshit. No run around. I guess they want their money. Um, but main reason that big companies incorporate in Delaware is because it's very, it's very advantageous to be in Delaware if you're sued. Like you, that is a great state to be in if somebody tries to sue you. Versus being a California corporation and being sued sucks. Being a Texas corporation is a good state to be in if somebody's trying to sue you. If you're a big business, if you're not going to end up a small claims court. The thing that will bite you in, in, in Texas is in most jurisdictions, if you get sued and you are a company in the state of Texas, you cannot represent yourself in small claims court. You must retain, retain an attorney, which makes you a target for small-level lawsuits because you sue me for 1500 bucks. it's going to cost me five grand to have my attorney to defend me. It's just easier to pay you. So, like, all of this spins – you see how this all spins together, right? So – as an individual it's a lot of an easier decision. It is never a decision to be taken lightly and it is a situation in which you really need to make sure that you know why you're doing what you're doing and I can't answer whether it's right for you or not on the air. CPA, tax attorney. I always say that doesn't mean you always need both. Depends on the size of what you're doing and the quality of the of the CPA you have. The CPA says, I think you should need to talk to an attorney. Trust your CPA. Your CPA says, here's how I understand everything. This is the law. I've been doing this for years. This is what I would do for you, and you're comfortable with that. Then you can take that action. The bigger web and problem I see here for you, though, is I think the reason you want to do an LLC or a company of some sort, uh, corporate filing, is because, one, it sounds like a good idea, but, two, because there's other people involved, and you want to make them co-owners My first question when somebody says that is, what do they bring to the table, and why can't you just pay them for that? I have always disliked partnerships. Having been through several of them, I now can say emphatically that I loathe, despise, and hate partnerships. There are points where you grow a business to a standpoint where you need a board of directors. You need co-owners and stuff like that. That's fine. You're not there. Not for a little music venue. Built out of rock. It's a great thing. It's cool. The rock venue, right? Whatever, man. The rock amphitheater. Cool. But it's your property and you own it. So then will your corporation own the amphitheater that you own the property that it sits on? Do they have ownership in the thing itself? Or just the company that sells tickets to it. That would be the way I would do it if I did it at all. Well, then, do you have full rights to do anything else with it you want since it's yours? Are you going to break off that piece of real estate and make it a corporate asset? See, all of this sounds like to me, every one of those questions I just asked you, no, no, no. No, you don't do that. No. This is what I would do. The people you're working with, I would create a revenue share agreement with them. It's something you can do with a direct contract with them. We're working together, and I would put a time limit on it. And at this point, we'll negotiate in good faith about where to go next with it. I want to keep working with you, but I want to make sure you're going to work. At an absolute maximum of what I would do with any kind of co-ownership in the business, I would form the company for the purpose of the revenue-generating activities with the company having no asset in the venue, which actually is pretty flexible because if another venue or a second venue or a second place for something came available, that company could – it has no infrastructure, so it could do that too. Okay? And then I would say there's X numbers of shares in the company. And somebody that wants partnership, I would say, well, what we'll do then, we'll sit down. And we'll make a two-year vesting period. We'll come up with quarterly metrics for the exact things that you're supposed to do. We will sign a contract. And after one year, then this much of the company will vest to you. And after two years, if all these metrics are met, then the rest will vest to you. By the way, if you don't hit your metrics for the second portion of the vesting, the shares you took come back to the company. And you have nothing. That sounds harsh. You need to be harsh with people when you're giving them ownership in something. Well, why would I work that hard? Because I'll pay you. Well, I want a path to, okay, I'm going to meet my obligations. Okay, then you should have a problem with this. Run away from anyone who has a problem with this. Run the hell away. Run like your life depends on it. You will end up miserable. You will hate your life. You will be Robert Frost in the middle of the woods thinking about killing yourself and letting your horse drag you back to your family. Don't do this. Am I clear? You have to have a compelling reason for a partnership. And I'm going to tell you something right now. If the partners have not tendered significant capital in the form of property or money, they do not deserve to be partners going into the enterprise with the promise of future labor and sweat equity. Sweat equity can earn ownership. The sweat comes first. The equity comes second, even in the phrase. You have it all done with an airtight contract. And if you're smart, you say, let's come up with the metrics together, agree to all the things, and you give it to your partner and say, your first job is you write the contract. Because any ambiguity in a contract benefits the party that did not draft it. So if anything's not quite clear, You want it to benefit you, not them, because you're the one with your ass on the line. I know this is not the answer you wanted, but I would prefer that you don't end up with a cute little horse with the shiny bells dragging your bloody corpse home to your family from the dark woods because you're that miserable. Let's take another one. Hey, Dak. Daniel here from Southeast Texas. My question is, what skills, especially from your sales background, but from anything else, do you think would help me be a better project manager? details are i just started a project manager position with an outdoor living company so we build pergolas and patios and new driveways patio covers that kind of thing and so i primarily interact between the customer and our subcontractors to make sure we have great customer service and get the job done um, to their satisfaction and solve any problems that arise Curious, especially as I said, from that sales background, if there's anything you think would apply or anything else just to help me do a fantastic job as a project manager um, and just uh, make the experience even better for them. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so the job of project manager, if I had to boil it down to the nuts and bolts of the most basic way exp- of explaining it, is understand your superpowers, understand your limitations, understand the superpowers of everybody in your organization, whether employees or contractors that you work with and their limitations, and then you use that knowledge to keep the crew, the workforce, whatever, delivering on time to the best of their ability with as few excuses as possible while keeping the customer happy in spite of the things that can and will go wrong. That's it. That is your entire job in a nutshell. That's it. My experience with sales um, has nothing to do with whether you're going to be successful or not at this, and a skill set of sales has something to do with it. So the skill set of sales is... It's two pieces, and and half of it is a lot like project management. And a lot of times you end up having in sales to do things that are very project management-like once the sale is completed. But the first half is getting the deal. Project managers, unless they're unique people – I have a friend who's very unique in this, this uh, way – but most project managers have little to do with sales – they may work with sales guys once in a while on a bigger project to make sure bids go in right or something like that. They may be the contact that you know is able to get the salesman in the door with a customer they've done work with before or something like that. But in general, especially with what you're describing, a project manager works like this: the company cuts a deal, uh, it goes through whatever process the company does once the deal's cut to get the job rolling, and a project manager is assigned to that job, and it goes. You know, the, the, the crew is dispatched, materials are ordered, whatever. And that project manager's job is again to just make sure that the work gets done, the customer stays happy, and everything gets done, and the customer signs off and is a happy customer at the end that will be happy to come back for more work and refer business to other people. And you've done your job. Uh can it be can there be more things to project management than that? Can there be hybrid sales project manager stuff? Sure. But that's all you asked me. So that's the understanding that you have to have. So the key then though is the, the most important thing I said is Understanding your own superpowers. What are you best at? And what are you weak at? What are the superpowers of the people you work with? And how do you bring those out? So for instance, on some levels, I would make a lousy project ma- manager because I am not detail-oriented. I, uh, we have this job. We have a crew. I want it done. I want it done right. I want this customer to be happy or somebody's ass is getting fired. That is my style of management. doesn't work everywhere. It really doesn't. You know, it's very military-like, except in the military, you don't get fired, but you end up miserable, and I will make you even more miserable until you do what the F you're supposed to do. That's my style of project management. My superpower is monetizing things. I make money. My superpower is figuring out what the person on the other end needs to be happy. My superpower is when I can't give them everything they want, making them okay with getting what I can give them. That's so... For me to be a project manager, I need a crew leader that's actually doing the work, that's detail-oriented, that I'm not going to have to push back on lots of times, and who's going to be honest with me. So I'm going to cultivate that in anybody that has to work for me. I'm going to cultivate, the first thing I'm going to cultivate with that person is a trusting relationship based on honesty. That's always good, but it may not be priority number one, depending on who and what you are and who and what they are. This is for me. So I want that first because it's the only way I'm going to be able to work through the fact that if it was up to me and you didn't do what you're supposed to do today, somebody would be replacing you tomorrow and you would be fired, and I probably can't do that in this situation because, number one, the company won't let me. Number two, if you have a significant workload, it may just not be logistically possible. I may have to keep somebody I don't like for a period of time till I can find a replacement for them. So, and, And it sounds like the kind of job you have. You're not going to have that authority at all. So then you have to cultivate that because that's when I can get that guy to tell me, this job's going south. We're going to lose money on this job. We can't get – I need to know as soon as there's a problem that the problem's there. And, and the best situation, I need the guy that's an experienced foreman to tell me the problem's coming before it shows up. Because even if I can't prevent it from showing up, I can go to the customer and say, hey, this is going to be a problem. This shipment's going to be late. I know we said we would be done by the state. There's no way that's going to happen now. I'm doing everything I can, but my foreman just came to me and said, we can't get the lumber, whatever it is. So I'm I'm checking with other suppliers, but right now it looks like when we were going to start construction on, we're going to have to start construction here. And it's amazing. The day comes for construction to start, and it doesn't start, you have a pissed-off client. You tell the client that is going to happen before it does. And most reasonable people will be happy with you because you kept them informed. You know, returning phone calls. That's a sales skill. That is also a project management skill. When I have had work being done here, and I would call the general contractor doing the work for me, who's the PM, and get a voicemail and leave a message, and the end of the day comes and I have not heard back. I am effing fuming. I make that call, call comes back. Even if I don't hear what I want to hear, the return call, the commitment to fixing it, I stay happy. That's project management. That's what, you have to, that's what you have to do here. Cultivate the relationships with the foremans. Cultivate the relationships with their number twos, their crew leaders or what have you, however that hierarchy works. Figure out who the up-and-comers are. And what you can do in a company like this over time is build your own crew, your own team where whenever jobs are assigned to you, you're saying, I want Tommy. I want Michael. And you get to do that because they want to work for you. Cultivate the honesty. Tell them to keep you informed. That's the most important thing. Sounds like you have a good structured company. So a lot of this is probably, that's the thing, when you go for the work for the right company, <clears throat> if you'll follow what you're taught, 80% of it, is already there for you. What separates you and makes you ironically t- part of the top 20% that gets 80% of the effectiveness done is the 20% that's not built into the system you have to do for yourself. That's the best I can do for you on a question like this. Let's go on to something more survival-y, like guns. Hey, Jack. This is Dave here. Uh, quick comment on the Mac tech upper. If you use a Glock 80% lower. Well, what Uncle Sam doesn't know doesn't hurt him. Just and so, just to clear some things up for maybe people that aren't in the know. First of all, we covered the mech tech carbine conversions um, a couple weeks ago, and what these are is you can take something like a Glock 10 millimeter handgun, pull the top off of it, take the lower. No barrel, no nothing. Just the lower, which is considered the firearm. So you can go buy uppers and chain swap out barrels and stuff like that uh, for, for different firearms, and you don't need any kind of paperwork or tax stamp or anything to do that. The lower is the gun. And then you take that lower and you slide it into this carbine conversion, and now you have basically a 10-millimeter carbine. kind of looks like an AR-15-style rifle. Okay, Great. So then what you've been able to do is let your handgun be a handgun and a carbine. What well, the caller suggesting is, and, and many different, in fact, you could do this with any gun, but there's, there's, they're av- highly available and inexpensive in a lot of situations, what well, they call it, 80% lower kit. Now what that means is it is not yet a firearm. Many, many Americans, many people in general, do not know it is completely legal to build a gun in the United States. Anybody can build a gun. What you can't do is build a gun that's not legal under United States law or your own state law if they have individual laws about this. So if you want to build an AR-15, for instance, you can buy a 80% lower kit, complete it yourself, put it together, and not only will you have a gun with no paper trail back to you, which is one of the things that's attractive about it, You will save money, which is another thing that's attractive about it. And you can get an 80% Glock lower. Very inexpensively, by the way, compared to buying a Glock. Okay? Then you complete this, which requires some work and some tools and some knowledge, but it's all stuff you can learn online. And anybody really can do it. And then you have a brand new gun with no paper trail anywhere, not registered. There's been no instant background checks. There's been nothing done. It is what they call, in the spooky world of politicians that like to scare people, a ghost gun. Alright. Capable of firing 9,000 million clips per second. Whatever, right? Okay, so you have your ghost gun. Now, there's no serial number to that gun. Because it's not a gun. It is recommended that you give it a serial number, for two reasons. One, if it gets stolen, you can report it as stolen. Because you if you built it and it's stolen, you certainly don't want it coming back to you. The other reason would be if you ever decide to sell it and it has to be transferred. When it would be transferred, it absolutely must go through the standard instant Insta background check and all that with an FFL. All right? That would be now. There's a gray area, and I'm not sure how this works out. But right now, if the, unless this new federal law passes and Trump signs it, um, I'm in Texas, I have a gun. You're in Texas, you want a gun. I have no reason to believe you are a felon. I want to sell you my gun. Here's my gun. Here's my cash. Bye. Done. I don't think that would be legal with a manufactured, privately manufactured firearm. I think at that point... Because it had never been in the system, it's supposed to go. How would you know i don't know that's i'm not that's a legal question i'm not really familiar with I haven't played around with this eighty percent stuff as much, so i don't really know here's what I like about it for the mech tech though it saves a buttload of money. You can buy a really good glock lower kit for like a hundred and fifty bucks and so that versus you know five hundred dollars for a complete handgun if you really See, what I'm saying here is not you want the ability to have the handgun and the carbine. What you really want is a 10-millimeter carbine. To get a high-quality, reliable carbine with a very high-capacity magazine potential with the Glock format, it's probably the least expensive way to get the quality of what you can get from what I've seen out of MEC So I think it's interesting. Uh, as far as the federal government, don't need to know nothing. They don't. Um, so I don't get too wound up about this, though. I really don't. like you, it, it, The way he said it was almost like you're getting away with something. This is totally illegal. They haven't asked to know anything. Not yet, anyway. Um, I also wonder, all these people that have this concept in their head, that since there's no paper trail to this, if they ever outlaw this gun, then they don't, come, they can't get it from me. I wonder how willing they're going to be to actually walk around with the potential of being captured in some situation and labeled a felon and I know being as pro-gun as I am and being in the niche that I'm in, that I'm supposed to be like, you know, from my cold, dead hands. Uh, yeah. And I'm not going to lie. There are situations where, you know what, we've tried all the other boxes. It's time for the ammo box. I, I honestly feel that way. And I do see a point at which if I thought freedom was in enough jeopardy and there was enough will of others to fight back, I would take up arms. I absolutely would. I believe in the real reason behind the Second Amendment, to defend the nation from threats at home or abroad, whether it's fighting alongside U.S. forces or fighting our own government. I believe that is the purpose of the Second Amendment. The people that I see always being really loudmouthed about this, though, I, I generally think that they are that drunk in the bar that I talk about. They talk a good game. I think that many of them would instantly comply. Because they would prefer um, relative freedom to guaranteed imprisonment. Because what you're talking about there is federal felonies, uh, if that happens. So, you know, it, it sounds nice. Well, I'll have this gun, and even if they pass federal federal gun control, they won't be able to know I have it. Yeah, but what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? And what might that do to your freedom? You know, I mean, there's there's a place where, yeah, that armed, that armed society... Being forced to a point of rebellion could happen. It is one of the least likely scenarios playing out, though. Please be honest with yourself about that. Uh, let's take another question, this one on finding others interested in learning about preparedness.
2: I wonder how can I find other interested people? Um, we actually are a husband and wife and um, do not know of any others. Our families are not interested in regards to being prepared and doing everything we can to become self-sufficient. And uh, we're really desperately wanting to join up with other like-minded people. Eastern Ohio, halfway between Youngstown and Cleveland. And how can we find others? I'd appreciate you addressing this. Thank you.
0: Well, one straightforward answer would be that we have state-level TSP groups and um, you might want to check out the one for Ohio. And on our, our website, and in uh, the show notes, there's always a link to find your Facebook group for your state, and I'll always add any group to that state that's new to the world of Facebook. But you can even just go on Facebook and search for Survival Podcast, your state, You know, put your state in their group, and you'll you'll find one if one exists. I think there's one for Southeast Ohio in addition to just Ohio. I'm not sure. But I think there is. Uh, And I know there's also kind of like a Western PA group. Uh, So that's also like, you know, East Ohio, West PA. That's kind of right next door to each other, right? A little river in between you there, but you can't get across. Um, So that would be one way. But I want to pull this back a little bit right now because I think this is a very teachable moment for many people that are new to the concept of self-sufficiency and preparedness and survivalism. I could be wrong, but I think I hear the sound of fear that comes with awakening here in this question. That there's some trigger point that made you and your husband feel like, oh my God, we need to be prepared. Something cataclysmic is going to happen. I've been doing this now for 11 years, and I have dealt with this with people over and over and over again. A lot of them come from the Alex Jones world. They get freaked out by him, and after a while, they're like, "Okay, he's got me freaked out. FEMA's going to get me. The new Illuminati's going to get me. The lizard people are going to get me. Whatever it is." And so, but he's not telling me what to do about other than to buy MLM vitamins uh, and, and and iodine tablets. So uh, I got to find some out. So they can go online, they start. Like, well, how do I do this? And because we have such a large presence, they'll find us. And they come very alarmed. And you don't sound as alarmed as some people. And like I said, I could be wrong, but I feel like that's there. Let's pull back. Let's pull back. And that way we can even pull back from the whole finding a group thing. You know, maybe we went out and read some James Wesley Rawls and got way over the top with this. Let's pull back a second. Self-sufficiency, self-reliance, Independence, liberty is what we teach here. And we teach you start at home. So the place to start is right in your household. And the thing that I would do, in addition to going back and listen to some of our shows, look up episodes based on subjects you want to learn about, is sit down with your husband, get a simple notebook out, and on the first six pages of that notebook, on the top of each page, write the following, page one, food. Flip it over to the second page, write water. Flip it over to the third page, shelter. Flip it over to the next page, energy. Flip over to the next page, fifth page, right? security. Flip it over one more, write health and sanitation. And then go back to the first page with food. Just look around your house and go. So if we couldn't go to the grocery store, how long would we be okay in our house? And a lot of people are like, you'd be dead in two days. No, you wouldn't. You might be bored in a week, but, you know, people are not going to starve to death inside a week in in their homes unless they live in Manhattan. So how much food's in your house? And then start thinking of ways we can shore that up without, let's go buy 47 pallets of MREs. Write down on that page, eat what you store and store what you eat. And I would say go a few pages in and start your food journal. Your food journal is going to be really simple. Every time you eat something, write it down. Monday, you know. March, whatever it's going to be, the 10th, two eggs, two pieces of bacon, this is what the husband ate, blah, blah, blah. Just write it down. Lunch, dinner, snacks, candy, whatever you eat. Just write it down. Do that consistently for a week. Go in and pick out of that list everything in there that you can easily store without refrigeration. Make a list. Every time you come up with a new one, add that to your list. Okay? And also, all the stuff that will store with refrigeration fairly well, fairly long-term, you write that down as well. You start looking at it, and everything needs nothing. You can just go on a shelf, put a star, and that gives it one star. And then... As you use stuff, if you find, well, I I have this can of the certain food, and I use it again, put another star next to it. And over a month or six weeks, just keep doing that. And you'll end up with certain things that have a bunch of stars. Those are the places where you need to start buying instead of one or two or three, whatever you buy, buy one or two extras. Bring it in your home, put it in your pantry. We call this copy canning. And the, the the newest stuff put in the back of the stack. And when that you know thing that usually had two cans has like 10 cans and they go all the way back to the wall of the pantry, go to another item on the list. You can do two or three at once if you want to. And just build out your pantry and your freezer with the things that you are going to eat anyway by buying just a little bit more over time, just like building a savings account with money. You know, if you want to save $50,000, you don't say, well, I'm going to save $50,000 this month. You say, I'm going to save $1,000 a month for 50 months, right? That's I mean, how you do it if you want to save $50,000. You bite it off like eating an elephant a piece at a time. And so that builds out your food storage. There is no reason the average person without buying a single specialty product can't get to a point where they're good for 30 days in their home without going to the grocery store. You could probably get through 99% of whatever might go wrong at that point. We haven't planted a garden. We haven't... Learn. We haven't taken firearms training, right? We haven't uh, bought an MRE. We haven't built a Coleman stove. I mean, we just simple water. How do we store that up? You know, do you use two-liter soda bottles? Hopefully, the answer is no, because I think it's garbage. But if you do, rinse them out, fill them up with water, find a place to store water, put them away. Arizona iced tea, the one-gallon jugs, that type of thing. Anything that's heavy plastic. Not milk jugs. They do rupture. They do break. You will find a wet closet. Trust me, I know. He starts storing water, and there's like that's as simple. That's as far as I'm going to go with this right now. Okay. But okay, now that water is short up a great deal. Energy. So we start. What could we do? Do we look at a small portable generator? Do we look at some? So just figure out what works for you in this situation. Go through all the categories and brainstorm it. And then pick the easiest, least expensive things to do and the ones that you feel that need to be shored up the most and do them first and work through it. All of a sudden, you're on the path. You listen to the show. You do that. You'll have a clear, defined direction for your life. Not what I say you should do, but what you say you should do. Finding others, again, I think you look where and as you can. But, And a lot of great relationships have come out of this community. You might want to get on the Zello network. You can go to survivalpodcast.com and click on the Zello channel. Install the app on your phone or on your computer. Follow the directions with the moderator so they'll let you on. It's like a two-way radio thing. Trust me, it's easy. Anybody can do it. Now you've got a community that maybe isn't where you are, but they are a community that's very helpful. Get on the Facebook forum. You can find the link for that on the site as well. Get in the forum, not just the state level, but the overriding one. Start meeting people. When it comes to meeting people that you do meet face-to-face. Don't lead with, hey, we're going to be new survivalists. Do you want to join us? Lead with the friendship. Lead with the relationship. And lead with activities that are generally acceptable activities that fit with the preparedness lifestyle. Get in a garden club. Find out if there's a garden club around you. People that grow vegetables. Anybody that grows vegetables that's good at it probably knows how to can and dehydrate and how to cook really cool with it. Right? So there's a whole skill set And you're going to meet people that are like-minded. Maybe they're not going to be like-minded about everything. Right? Um, You know, if you want to learn more about self-defense, get firearms training. See if there's a gun club around. Join that. See what I'm saying? Like, don't try to make it like, we want to be self-sufficient. We want to be preppers. I need a prepper group. Find people that have common interests. Build your relationships. And you'll find commonality. That's the best I can do in a simple answer on a show like today's. Really encourage you, get involved with our social media groups. Take your time with that. Big thing about social media, not just for us, everywhere. People get into social media and they expect immediate everybody to listen to them and everybody to talk to them. You don't walk into a bar room or a chamber of commerce meeting and expect that. Social media may be online. It's a little easier for the introvert, but you still take time to build relationships. With that, let's take another one. Hopefully that helped you.
2: Hello, Jack. PSPC question food prep since you have changed to paleo slash keto what has this done for your food supplies and replacement of things like beans and rice membership name is grog thank you for all you do hope the family is doing well Look forward to your answer.
0: Thank you. So I've covered this a bunch of times, and I'm just going to tell you that this is not as hard as people make it out to be. I just gave the previous caller a pathway for food storage. Do that. Do that, and let's stop worrying about having a year of rice and beans in a bunker. And if you really are worried that you're going to need a year of food, Use rice, beans, lentils, etc. pasta. Go ahead, store it. Store it, put it away, live your paleo lifestyle. But you eat meat. No, yeah, yeah, okay, but fine. But fine. If I am in a situation where the world has ended, the zombies are marching, uh, it's raining dogs and cats, and the cats and dogs are getting together, having puppy kittens, and they're turning into zombies that are killing people, and I have to live in my bunker for a year, I'll eat rice and beans. Maybe I'll get fat, maybe I won't. I don't know. I'll probably be rationing it, so it won't matter. Okay, so, like, if you're worried about that amount of food storage, then you can still use those long term storable staples for that role. You can also rely on Mountain House, providing pantry, et cetera. Your 10, you know, number 10 freeze dried cans. Um, my personal view, though, is the best thing to get in those anyway is meat. You know, the things I have that are in number 10, you know, 25-year cans, uh, ground beef, beef cubes, chicken cubes, sausage, gulf shrimp. Those are the things I have the most of. And the reason why is I can totally dehydrate green beans, put them in a a jar, throw them in my, my dry can sealer, and they're just as good as far as storability. Now, freeze-dried green bean is much better than dehydrated green bean, but most other things, you know, we dehydrate Swiss chard, spinach, all that stuff out of the garden, whatever's in surplus, in our dehydrator. Why am I going to pay, you know, a premium on a product that doesn't need to be freeze-dried so we can shore up our meat with that? I have a deep freezer, but what about when the grid goes out? I got 60 gallons of gasoline and multiple generators. My food storage is in deep, deep freeze storage. To me, it's not a big deal. And I'm back to eat where you store and store where you eat. And then you look out and you branch out and, well, what else can I store? We have canned cheese. We have canned butter. Those are great fats. you know, And we, we do a little bit of grains, pastas, and things like that. So we store some of that. But we just don't store as much as we did back when I first started when we were eating it all the time. We also do store some things that I that I look at that people say are not paleo, and I don't totally agree. Like lentils, okay, um, like uh, black beans, things like that. Those uh, products are actually relatively low carbohydrate, and especially in smaller servings, which is how we use them. So it used to be I would have a big old plate of let's say black beans and rice and then a small portion of meat now i have a huge portion of meat and a tiny little helping of let's say black beans and rice so that that then i can still store more of that than i need in fact it's ideal but i'm still slowly you know maybe once a week i'm dipping into that storage to take a little bit out of it so i still get a rotation on a long term storable it just isn't hard It isn't hard unless your entire mindset is five-gallon buckets, mylar bags, gamma lids, O2 absorbers, rice and beans. Unless you're thinking that way, it doesn't even move the needle on the difficulty level of storage. Now, there are some good things to think about for storable proteins. Canned fish, canned seafood is great. So many things we can do with it. Clams, crab meat, sardines. Salmon, etc. There's lots of things we can do with those things. And they are high protein, but usually they're fairly high in fat too because they're stored in oil or they're naturally fatty fish. So just broaden your viewpoint and you just won't have that much difficulty storing, you know, food. Because other than the pasta, rice, and beans, almost everything else is okay, Right? I mean, anything else needs something done to it for it to store well. you know. So, yeah, we're not storing 200 pounds of flour. But maybe we never should have. That's just the way I look at it. Let's take another one. This one on CPAs kind of pulls back to the LLC question at the beginning. Hi, Jack. How would you go about finding and vetting a tax accountant? I'm moving to a new state in a few weeks and have always had simple taxes that I filed with an online program. Now that some of my hobbies are turning into side hustles, I'd like to consult with a CPA on best practices for my situation. Where would you start? What questions would you ask? What would you watch out for? Appreciate your input. Thanks for the show. So I've talked about how there's people that don't really need a CPA. You know, you're filing a 1040 EZ and you're hiring a CPA. You're just giving away money. Um, You're even filing a regular 1040 a lot of times, which is what you're talking about. You can... You can do that on your own until you get into the world of doing like a Schedule C with business income. You probably don't need a CPA, Uh, or until you get into advanced investing strategies that have um, sophisticated. Like you're doing an IRA, it's just a number you drop into a program. You you know whatever. It's just it's not that complicated. But when you're doing sophisticated investment strategies, um. You've, you've built up a, a larger wealth portfolio, then we need to be involving a more sophisticated CPA. So if you had said, well, Jack, I'm going to probably do $20,000 in side hu- hustle income, I'd say you probably definitely need a CPA. If you're going to do a couple hundred bucks, then you probably don't. You could probably just use your online program uh, or TurboTax or whatever, and there, you can do all of it yourself. It's getting into strategies and what is and isn't. That's where you really want a CPA on your side. Personally, if it were me and I were you, I would go to a company like HR Block. Let me explain something about those. Do not go to the little HR Block or Jackson Hewitt booth they set up at Walmart in tax season. That's not what you want to do. Um, you want to go to a permanent office or even a seasonal office that they own. And HR Block's pretty good. I'll tell you the, the truth. Our CPA, who's also a tax attorney, that's how we found him. And we, we still use Block because of him, not because of Block. And generally, when you go into an H&R Block office, there'll be a guy that, or a gal that runs the whole office. And they will be very experienced and very good at what they do. And then the, the, the underlings will run the gamut of really experienced to just, eh, they're a CPA. And any CPA is a lot smarter than someone who isn't about this stuff unless that person lives in it too. So they're going to be useful to you anyway. The more complex what you have is, they will put you with somebody more suited to deal with your situation. When we started building TSP and some other side businesses and stuff like that, and we had multiple corporations, multiple sources of income, multiple uh, deferral strategies with investments, then what happened was they're like, uh... The guy that basically tapped out that we 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 had for a bit calls Richard over, who is our guy. Richard looks at and goes, yeah, I can handle this. Sits down with us. And after he did our taxes that year, he's like, from now on, I'm doing your taxes for you when you come here. And he's like, I don't do m- m- many people's taxes here. I kind of fill in when we're short or something, and I oversee everything, and I answer questions. And we started talking, and when I found out, he was also a tax attorney. I was like, and, and you know, so... His office is in Arlington. We live an hour away from there. I still drive down there every year to do my taxes there because of how good he's been. So you can find a good tax preparer that way. You definitely are not in tax attorney uh, territory with just some side hustles. Until you build things up significantly, it's just self-employment income, and it just adds to what you can deduct. The most valuable thing that a CPA does for you is go, you, you you can deduct that, no problem. You can deduct that, but here's what you should call it, right? You can't deduct that, but if we change this, then you can call it that, and then you can deduct it. Or do not even think of deducting that, you will get your ass in a sling. H&R Block also has a program um, where basically, they, I don't remember what it's called now, but we get it every year. It's like a 100 bucks, And You have to have significant income for it to be worth it, I guess. But to us, um, what it says is they guarantee all the calculations are correct. And all the decisions that they've advised you on, they'll stand behind as long as you were honest with them. And if you get a letter from the IRS, they answer it. If you get an audit, they stand with you. Peace of mind, that's what it's called. Totally worth it. And it brings peace of mind. I got two nasty grams from the IRS over the last 10 years demanding more money. They were not audits. They were, you didn't pay this. You should have paid this. Now you have this fine and that fine and this interest and sent us a check for $2,500. And both times Richard drafted me a letter, said, here, you sign it. You send it. You, you no, know, he, he signs it, right? Because he signs it, uh, CPA, a tax attorney, right? Right. Um, he uh, he signs it, sends it in on our behalf. We just sign off on it. And both times, we got letters back from the IRS saying we were wrong. I should have framed those letters. Those are the sweetest letters that have ever come from government ever. The IRS saying they were wrong, and you're good to go. We, they're somewhere. We did save because you never throw that away. Uh, I should get my wife to dig through the paperwork and get those on the wall, man. Um, but, yeah, I would start at something like that. And I, I have to say... If you need to talk to h r Block Corporate, they suck. They really do. They are, you know, CSRs that follow a script and say whatever the book says, and they don't think outside the box. So if you do find a good location and a good person there, a lot of those people, they work from like January 5th to April 16th or whatever in a seasonal office, and then they go do something else. Some of them only work that time of year. Some of them have their own practices, but they go there because they're a small practice. Uh, Some of them have, like, part-time work they do as bookkeepers or whatever, and they work full-time. Whoever you have, get their personal contact information should you need them during the down season when that temporary office is closed. Every time we've gotten in touch with Richard, and there's a gal there that works with us as well, they've always helped us even when they are not, you know, on the clock because they value our business. We come every year, we stick with them. So that's that's where I would start out at, at your level. And if you move into more sophisticated things, then look for somebody that specializes. But honestly, at our level, even the, the person we found through Block is awesome. Uh, we got one more, this one on UBI.
3: Hey, Jack, this is Will from South Carolina. Uh, my question is, um, or actually my I want to know your opinion on uh, universal basic income. Uh, Joe Rogan recently did an interview with presidential candidate Andrew Yang, and one of the main things he's running on is universal basic income. Um, just wanted to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Bye.
0: So this is another thing that I've I've talked about a lot, and with things like the Green New Deal and all, it's you know coming up in the mainstream again. It's been a meme in 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 media uh, and the left agenda for at least five years now. A lot of people say it can't be done, it can't work, it's just socialism. A lot of people say, you know, you hate poor people, why do you hate poor people, and there's no reason we can't do this. And, and like I said, I'm going to come at this from a standpoint that I know if I don't give this disclaimer, I'm going to get all kinds of hate emails. You're so stupid, I can't believe you're a Marxist. Stop, just stop. I. Where do you people come from? I, I don't get it. Um, at one point in my career... I was endeavoring to become a better salesperson and a better public speaker, and I've spent a lot of my life becoming a good public speaker, and one of the groups I got involved with was an, a debate club, like a debate club in high school, but for like business people, and it was a place that we kind of got together, and it was a little bit expensive to be part of, but you had a really good dinner, and you got drunk, and before you got drunk, hopefully too drunk anyway, um, you debated. You took positions, hot-button positions. And by debating, instead of doing something like Toastmasters, you actually really perfected your public speaking ability because you were put on the spot, because you had to defend a position, because you had to make a case. And I really think it's part of what made me a good speaker. But we did it just like debate teams in like high school or college. You would get at a meeting, your next subject is. And you go learn about it. And when you came back to the next meeting which again was a dinner and getting drunk on martinis, you would debate your opponent. But let's say the issue was gun control. Do you talk about an issue that I am one-sided on? Brother, it's gun control. Like, we don't need it. It's not constitutional. But if that was your issue, you had to research both sides, and basically we drew lots, and you got A or B. A is pro- B is against, if you got A, you had to debate from the position of being pro-additional gun control, even if you completely disagreed with it. I'm coming at that, this issue mostly that way. I'm going to tell you how UBI could work, but I'm also going to say before I do, I don't trust government with money, I don't trust government with power, and I don't trust government to be competent. So I never expect that it could work this way with government in control. And the only way I see for it to happen right now is for government to be in control. So let's talk about what UBI is, universal basic income. Everybody gets two grand a month. Everybody gets $2,500 a month. Everybody gets $800 a month. Everybody gets something. The basic premise, I don't actually have an argument against. You are a human being. As a human being, you have a certain value. As a human being that lives in a nation as wealthy as the United States, there should be some portion of what is available that is, you you have access to it because you exist. Now how big a piece that is, that's debatable, but like a decent ration of the total pie because you exist. That number again, I don't know. And one of the reasons I don't believe this can work is that every time I see it discussed, I always want to know what people think. So I read comments, more important than the proposal by an author. And, you know, maybe the author writes like $2,000 a month, and I see a shitload of people saying, I can't live on that. Really? Holy crap. Wow. Wow. Um, Talk about, like, and they're all, I mean, like, I need at least $4,800. People start, already, this thing that doesn't, is not happening, not going to happen, guys spitballs it hypothetically, they already want more money. And a society like we live in, where everybody feels like they're entitled to shit already, I just see this as a disaster. But here's how it could work. You figure out that, number one, we want to do away with all state-level welfare, period. No food stamps, no government housing, no nothing, nothing. You can take whatever that number is now, the total dollars. And remember, there's a lot of waste in the system. If a dollar goes into Section 8 housing, a dollar doesn't come out the other side, more like a quarter does. So if all you were doing is just taking the money and sending it to people as cash or cash equivalency, you could have an efficiency of like 95%. Like 95 cents on a dollar gets to somebody. So then you just take that number and divide it up against the total population. And everybody could have something now. It's probably dirt, but it's something. So right now, you could just eliminate all welfare. With a state still existing, people are going to still pay taxes. So the rich guy that gets his UBI is basically going to lose it back in taxes anyway. So it's only the people that don't pay taxes are really going to realize the gain. For everybody else, it's like a tax rebate. But what you could do is, once you figured out what the number is, if you change the monetary system to be something akin to a cryptocurrency system, instead of borrowing money to create money, you actually just created money and spent it into the economy. You could make up the difference so that everybody could have $1,500, $2,000 dollars. Now, this doesn't mean there's no taxes, but in a perfect system, as far as still having a state, the state would have to then earn its money by providing voluntary services. But roads, okay, roads are a voluntary service. No one makes you use them. So, usage fees for the roads, okay, you have that. That pays for the roads. Any surplus goes back to the general fund, which goes back to pay UBI. If people want a government certification so they can say they have it. It's the same now as a private certification, but there's a cost of that. It's up to the government to figure out how to do it so that they don't lose money doing it. And that goes back to the general fund. You could do that and have the basic services that the state is supposed to the, – all the ones the state to say, but without the state, how would we? Okay, those are all things people would voluntarily use. And at this point in human history – I can see how people make a case for my roads. Because if we got to put a road somewhere, it's not just a road. How do we get it there? That's where ugly things like eminent domain and right-of-ways get used, etc. But you know, if you're going to connect a country this big, some of that's going to have to happen, at least under the current system. So that could all be done and be self-funding. And the rest of government's activities and the continued recirculation of the UBI could be covered with a federal sales tax. I would prefer a world with no taxes. I admit that, but if you eliminated the income tax, eliminated it. There is no more income tax. Doesn't exist. What you would then do is spur the economy, and with all this money being pushed into the economy through EBI, you would spur it even further. And every time a dollar was spent, a piece would go back to the pool, reducing the amount of new money that would need to be created to make up the shortfall in the interim. And then you set people free. Here's your UBI. Go earn as much as you want over the UBI. You can go make $20 trillion. Not going to happen, but you can. And you only pay money, tax on the money, when you spend it. Contrary to popular belief, rich people do spend lots of money. So every time money is spent, it is then taxed. We consider that a usage fee for the infrastructure That allows safe commerce in the nation. You don't want to pay it. Don't buy new items. Be in that secondary market. Because sales tax generally only applies. the Final sale point of new items. If I sell you something. Jack sells Tom uh, a used box of shit. There's no tax. There's no sale tax on that. If I have a business. Specifically buying and reselling. Like a pawn shop. That is subject to sales tax in most states. Otherwise, private commerce. There's a whole other economy at work there. Then, and you could do this. And I don't know how much the number would be, but you could make that system work, and end totally the welfare state. This is why it can't work. Now I'm I'm off my. I'm now I'm on the other podium. Okay. Number one, the government will abuse any power that it has. It always has. It always will. There's never been a case of government being being granted a power that it didn't abuse. Once your basic subsistence needs, the, the ability to basically feed and clothe and house yourself, were being met by a government stipend. The government at any time can exercise complete control over you just by shutting it off. Think of YouTube just demonetizing someone that said something they didn't like in a video. But now it's the government doing it to you with the flip of the switch. So it becomes an immediate method of governmental control that will be abused. Number two, the government does not want a society where everybody's needs are met because then class warfare becomes difficult if not impossible. So the government doesn't want UBI as a solution to all the world's problems It's presented. The government wants UBI as a way to control people, but they only want enough UBI to still make the people getting it feel like the rich people should give you more. That's what they want. They want a control mechanism, and they want to maintain class warfare. Next, whether you want to believe it or not, our entire economy and the entire United States monetary system are not under the control of the United States government. The United States government has almost zero control over the Federal Reserve. Yeah, the president appoints the Federal Reserve chairman. Yeah, there's boards that meet, and they're subject to some governmental oversight. But in the end, the Fed does whatever it wants. The Fed controls the monetary supply. They can sh- control the issuance and the expansion and contraction of the monetary supply, and they make a profit on every Percentage point of interest that our government pays against this debt back to them. And you can never repay the national debt because every new dollar is a note for debt with interest attached to it. So the current economic system, it is impossible to make UBI work the way that it's presented or the way that I said it could work. The beauty of it, if you did it, if you actually did it, is number one, I think that if you eliminate welfare, a lot of our problems go away. People become like, okay, stand up. And when somebody says, but I don't have what you have, you have your two grand a month, go get a job. Well, I can only get a job making a thousand a month. Well, that's three now. There's no tax on that until you spend it. All right. So that ends. What about illegal immigration? How much do you really care that Jose comes here to pick lettuce if Jose's kids don't get welfare? If Jose's wife is not really his wife and she's living in government housing with the kids, like you really care? They're not getting, you know, free health care down at the hospital while you stand in line paying for health insurance. Like you take that away? Right? Because obviously if no one gets welfare, Jose doesn't. So all of a sudden that becomes a lot less important. There's a safety net in the fact that everybody has enough to survive. But incentive is, it's just enough. It's just enough. It can be done. The only way for it to be done, though, would be for it to be done basically with a computer-locked algorithm that prevents the ass-clowns in Congress from using it to buy and peddle influence. It's not going to happen. Whatever does happen will be a disaster. Whatever does happen will be whole-scale socialism. Whatever does happen will end in whining, gnashing of teeth, screaming, and yelling. And it will always be the rich guy's fault. Because that's the same playbook they've always used. That's my thoughts on it. But it doesn't mean it couldn't work. It just means under our current system, it can't work. And there's something else that nobody wants to say about our country. A lot of things that can work, can't work here. Because our ethics as a nation suck. Our work ethic sucks especially the work ethic of some of our younger people, but a lot of our middle-aged people at this point. The work ethic sucks. The, The community level is almost nothing in generalized America today. There is no strong backbone community. The family unit has been decimated by the welfare system. There's probably more single mothers than wed mothers at this place, and we have made single motherhood into something you get a trophy for and get admired for I'm not saying single mothers should be shamed, but what I am saying is it's not a good thing to be a single mother. It would be better if there was a, a man in the house to be the male influence because a woman and a man, no matter what your gender studies book says, is bullshit, a woman and a man do better raising a child than one or the other because of a balance, because we are different. All these countries that they point to, where they make some level of socialism work, have incredible work ethics, they have a very homogenous society, they have a strong level of community, and they have extremely strict immigration. We have none of those things. So those programs can't work here, even if they're viable programs under our current culture, situation, and system. That's pretty depressing, so let's go ahead and wrap up for the day. I'm going to go real quick at the end of today's show because you can hear my voice is just done. I had to completely stop a couple times today, uh, go get a drink and what have you. So just want to remind you real quick, you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at t I have a product review for you every day. Today is the Lodge cast iron skillet, not, not cast iron, Lodge carbon steel skillets. Uh, you can read my review. It will come out in the daily mail. It's on the website. Again, I want to finish up, preserve my voice for tomorrow. Um, what I will say, since the last time I talked to you about these skillets, I kind of slowly over time completely went to carbon steel. So I had used stoneware, cast iron, carbon steel. And my main use of carbon steel was high temperature searing. And over time, the stoneware has been given away. The cast iron, as much as I appreciate it as being, you know, hundred year old equipment is kind of put away. And I do 90% of the cooking I do on a stovetop or even in an oven on carbon steel. It's that good. It's inexpensive. It lasts forever. Take care of it. Do what you're supposed to do with it. It's nonstick. It's awesome. About the only thing that I still use a lot of cast iron for is Dutch oven cooking and things like that. Otherwise, I'm almost 100% carbon steel. Check it out. And remember, you can always help us. Find all our reviews. And no matter what you buy, you help us if you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. So we are in Chris Stapleton week this week with our song of the day as we totally wrap up today. Today's song is probably one of my favorite songs by Chris Stapleton just to listen to. It's called Parachute. It was on his Traveler uh, album released in 2015. I think it's probably one of the biggest hits off of it. It's definitely it's his kid's favorite song, right? Kid's S, plural. Um Here's a little bit on the song from Songfats. Chris Stapleton wrote this with Jim Beavers, who wrote Luke Bryan's Drink a Beer and Toby Keith's Red Solo Cup. He recalled, I had a dream and I woke up with the lyrics, You Only Need a Roof When It's Raining, rolling around in my head. Didn't really know what they meant, but I liked the sound of it. When I got together with my friend Jim Beavers that day, I walked in the room and he was playing music that was clearly meant for the lyrics I had dreamt. It seemed the two were meant to be, uh, meant to meet that day. Some days they're luckier than others. So that's the story of it. So he kind of wrote this song just because it sounded really cool. you know. And here's here's your opening stanza. Street lights along the highway, throwing shadows in the dark. And the memories keep on turning to the rhythm of a broken heart. This just sounds very classic country. But this, you only need a roof when it's raining. Listen to this. And tell me this really couldn't, if you think about it right, be a prepper anthem. You only need a roof when it is raining. You only need a fire when it's cold. You only need a drink when the drink when the whiskey is the only thing that you have left to hold. Sun comes up it goes back down and falling feels like flying till you hit the ground. Say the word and I'll be there for you. Baby, I will be your parachute. But in the real world, you can't always rely on somebody to be your parachute. There's nothing that's more an analogy to preparedness than a parachute. You know you only need to parachute when you got to get out of the plane without it landing whether it's crashing or because you know it's your job you don't you know you don't get on an airplane unless it's for recreation or military purposes you don't get on an airplane and hope gee I hope I get to use this parachute today but when that plane's going down you're pretty happy if you stored that parachute behind the seat that's preparedness in a nutshell guys you only need the stored food when you can't get more because you're broke, because you can't leave the house. You only need, you know, quote-unquote, need the handgun on your back when somebody's trying to hurt you or a loved one or an innocent person. But then you need it. If I could sum up preparedness, it would be be your own parachute. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.